Chapter 1, Paris. A meowing cat can't catch mice. Yiddish proverb. These Paris train stations, once beautiful examples of neoclassical architecture and decorated with murals, are being converted into shopping centres and fast food emporia. Only the facades remain. I'm in the Gare du Nord, hanging around on the platform, waiting for my train to depart. A ticket controller, also lolling out here, isn't adverse to a complaining conversation. This is the third world. Just last night there was a gang war, blacks against Arabs. They had machetes, axes, broken bottles. Happens all the time now. On the train you'd better be careful, too. At the Belgian border the train stops for five minutes, and that's when the thieves get on, help themselves. Sure, there are plainclothes police on the train, but they're only there for immigration control. What a century. Why blame the century? The Gare du Nord, Gare de l'Est, Gare de Lyon, their surrounding streets have seen it all. Over a hundred years ago, Jewish refugees, fleeing Eastern European pogroms and charges of blood libel, stepped into France here. And believe me, flat broke as they were, a plethora of no-good nicks were ready and waiting to exploit them. Baggage thieves, unscrupulous landlords, pimps, sellers of bogus tickets to nowhere. Here were those who would turn immigrants into slaves, for a third entered France illegally. No official papers, no rights. You can't tell the desperate something like that, though. All believed Paris would be a paradise, a Latin Shangri-La, the capital of a benevolent country where equal rights guaranteed dignity and freedom from anti-Semitism. Those who settled became France's first Yiddish-speaking community and with their old country traditions, managed to turn the Gallic streets of the Marais, Belleville and Clignancourt into Ersatz Eastern European Städtlich. Crowding several families into each apartment, most worked as tailors, hatters, junk dealers, ragmen, shoemakers or peddlers. Others starved or went from house to house begging. Their unruly children ran wild, and turned to petty theft. Not a few, their dreams shattered, climbed the Bastille with its gilded statue brandishing the torch of civilization, and leapt into the afterlife. Avoiding the established French-Jewish community, considering them heretical and hardly Jewish at all, the immigrants formed Landmannschaften, benevolent societies named after former hometowns, and depended upon them for aid and social life. Of course, not all the new arrivals were conservative. Some were of quite another ilk. Intellectuals, students and radical socialists, those who had cut all ties with Jewish tradition. Yet, religious or not, these Eastern European Jews were a shock to France's established community. French Jews, like their German and Austrian counterparts, were modern, urban, urbane and assimilated. Possessing the same rights as non-Jews, some had become powerful businessmen, bankers, lawyers, 
university professors, officers in the army, and engineers. In their synagogues, prayers and sermons were held in French. The bima, an elevated platform, was now right up at the front, like any church altar. There were choirs and organs. Sure, the incomers were also Jews, but what did they have in common with Frenchmen? Those caftan-wearing Eastern cousins hailed from Orthodox communities, where life had stood still for centuries, and where religious injunction dictated thought and behaviour. Tension mounted. French Jews feared their backward-looking relatives would kindle anti-Semitism, that unpleasant racial stereotypes would be applied to them as well. Yes, they were sympathetic to the suffering of their brethren. The recently created Alliance Israelite Universelle even organised an aid centre in the Galician border town of Brody. But wasn't it better to send the newcomers elsewhere? Where? Jewish communities in Marseille, Avignon, Macon, Troyes, Toul and Saverne refused them, pleading lack of funds and local antipathy. Toulouse, Nîmes, Versailles, Hagenau, Lixheim and Lille accepted a few, but with little enthusiasm. Only emigration to North America seemed a good solution, and most soon set sail. By 1901, Paris counted a mere 3,000 Romanian Jewish immigrants, 1,000 Polish, 4,000 Russian, and a handful of Hungarians. But as feared, economic jealousy coupled with the church's religious intolerance did foster hatred. Medieval tales of Jews as carriers of disease were revived. Catholic right-wing newspapers, such as L'Autorité, claimed Jews, the dirtiest people imaginable, were carrying cholera bacteria in their baggage. Edouard Drummond, founder of the French Anti-Semitic League, proposed that the Jewish population, entirely comprised of rich bankers, Polish swindlers and criminals, be excluded from society. Those of left-wing persuasion claimed an all-powerful Jewish bourgeoisie would sap France's strength through modernization and then betray the country to foreign enemies. Soon all Jews, even elite bankers, were on the receiving end of jibes, caricatures and virulence. Any pretext, the Yiddish language, the Jewish physique, success, education and a way of life was fuel for the anti-Semitic fire and it culminated in the false charge of treason against the Jewish army officer, Alfred Dreyfus. France's great rabbi, Zadok Kahn, openly defended Dreyfus. So did the journalist Bernard Lazare and prominent non-Jews, such as Anatole France, Émile Zola, Henri Poincaré and Georges Clemenceau. But not the established Jewish community. The future Jewish prime minister, Léon Blum, later wrote... The prevailing attitude was that Jews shouldn't get involved in the affair. An ear-popping electronic beep signals the train's departure. I take my assigned seat, and despite my determination to time travel backward, am firmly ensconced in the 21st century, pinned here by the monologue of the woman sitting across the aisle. I really wanted to go to Thailand for my holiday, she whines to her companion. 
I mean, I just wanted to go to some exotic place, lie on the beach, relax, soak up the sun. Then I found out that all the places with beaches, every single one of them, cater to tourists. I mean, can you imagine? That's not what I'm looking for. The whole world's been ruined by tourism. Cambodia and India, too. There's not a decent beach left anywhere. After that, she laments her mother's indifference, that all men are selfish and break your heart, that she has endless problems with a smartphone application. Her friend, a passive victim to this logoria, struggles to keep her eyes open. She only wants to snuggle down, doze. Defeated, I change train compartments to escape this century's nasal plaint. Contrary Journey with Velvel Sparzer Bard is published by Claret Press and is available in ebook and paperback.